The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. In Revelation chapter 5, we get a glimpse of the singing in heaven. And whatever the singing's like in heaven, we know that it's singing the truth. You know, Paul said in writing to one of the churches, I believe it was the uh, church at Corinth, that I will sing with the Spirit and I will sing with the understanding. And if you read that entire chapter, you'll see that he applied that also uh, to our praying and I believe also our preaching. We We must do these things in the Spirit and with the understanding and that's in complete harmony with what Jesus said in John chapter 4 where he said that we're to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. Uh, Truth requires understanding. We must have understanding of God's word to worship him in spirit and in truth. So as we look at the singing in heaven, we should take note of it and realize that what they're singing is the truth. And I just want to read in uh, Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9, it says, And they sung a new song. Now, there's a lot of people in heaven that will be singing a new song when they get there. They'll be singing a song that they never sung while here on earth. They'll have complete understanding. And regardless of how much understanding we may think we have about the salvation of God in Christ, really we'll all be singing a new song because we'll realize the fullness of what we have in Christ. But here's what I want to take note of. They were singing a new song saying, here's the lyrics to the hymn. Thou art worthy to take the book, and I believe he's referring there to the Lamb's book of life. Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And what I want you to remember from this verse is that as they were singing in heaven, they understood that all the people there were God's people that had been redeemed by His blood out of every kindred, tongue, people, and nation. So in heaven, we will fully understand how big God's family is, and they're represented uh, not only from people all over the world, but as the Bible teaches in other places, they're represented of people throughout time. So there's going to be a large congregation in heaven, and they'll all be singing the truth, in worshiping God perfectly for the first time. 
Now, in the Old Testament, we understand how God chose to give his blessings to the nation of Israel. They started out very small. Matter of fact, the Lord said, I didn't choose you because you were, as I would put it in my words, because you were so impressive. But he said, you're the least of all people. Nonetheless, God chose them and and as they obeyed his word and worshipped him the way he said to, they had his blessings. Now, as we think of our worship today, we can think about what the worship's like in heaven. There'll be people there out of every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. And when we consider that and reflect upon how God blessed a particular nation in the Old Testament, it gives us a better understanding of how to approach the New Testament. And here's what I mean by that. Some of the people that were being written to, especially in the Gospels, were the Jews that thought that God was only working with them. And even Jesus taught this in his early ministry. He said that I want you to go just to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He said, don't enter into any city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And of course, that's referring to the Israelites the Jews. But then you'll read things like this. Paul said, for example, that he was the apostle to the Gentiles. He said in one place when he was frustrated as to how the Jews were rejecting the gospel, he said, seeing that you judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. Now the reason I'm giving you uh, that overview is so that you'll understand the portion of scripture that I want to look at tonight in Romans chapter 12 but to get the context I want to read three verses from Romans chapter 11 in light of the things I've just set before you. Romans chapter 11 verse 27 Paul says or rather, here's what the Lord is saying. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away... Oh, that's not where I want to start. Let's go down to uh, verse 30 is where I wanted to start. He says, for is ye, that is, you Gentiles, for is ye in time past have not believed God. You remember in the Old Testament when they would make mention of the Philistines, the Amorites, the Hittites, all of those ites in the Old Testament, they weren't considered the people of God in the sense that they had God's blessings. You remember David even looked at Goliath and referred to him as this uncircumcised Philistine. How dare he defy the armies of Israel? Now you see, we understand today that God has a people from all over the world. 
he did in that day, but that light and revelation was not understood. And we read how in heaven it will be fully understood that God has a people from all over the world. But notice what Paul is addressing here. He says, even so, uh, for, for his, verse 30, For as ye in time past have not believed, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief. What's he talking about? He's saying, because the Jews, in a general sense, rejected the gospel message, that opened the door, if you will, for you Gentiles to receive the gospel. Notice how he explains that in very simple terminology. In earlier on in the chapter, uh, verse uh, 16 says, For if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches be broken off, and thou being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them, and with them partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree, boast not against the branches. Now watch this. Boast not against the branches, but if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. We need to be very careful if we ever catch ourselves saying, well, we have the truth. And God is certainly going to continue to bless us to understand and perpetuate the truth. That's what he's addressing here. These Gentiles in the New Testament have now been partakers of the truth. And it's no longer uh, only blessings that are given to the Gentiles. But notice what he says. He says, verse 18, Boast not against the branches, but if thou boast, thou bearest not the root. But the root thee, thou wilt say then, the branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Here he is identifying the wrong attitude to have. Don't say, well, they rejected it. And we were so impressive that God actually cut them off in order to graft us in. He goes on to say, verse 20, Well, because of unbelief they were broken off. Now notice here, he's dealing with God's people abiding in Him. And he says, because of their unbelief, they were broken off. And thou standest by faith, be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed, lest he also spare not thee. No one has a, a special uh, claim to the gospel. That's what we need to understand. Anytime one people rejects it or becomes indifferent, the Lord is going to give it to someone who will praise Him for it. And in the history that we're looking at now, I just want you to understand what the application is, that these people that had the truth, had God's Word for all these years, did not receive the gospel 
And the Lord said, there's somebody that will receive it, and I'm going to give it to them because the Lord's going to have someone praising Him and worshiping Him in truth. On one occasion, when the disciples rebuked those that were making too much noise, Jesus then rebuked them and said, if these should hold their peace, behold, the stones would immediately cry out. If the Lord has to get rocks to praise Him, He will. The Lord is going to have a people praising Him. But see, this forbids us from having the attitude of saying, well, the Lord's going to have true worshipers all the time, so what do we have to worry about? Here's what we need to think about. It may not be you and I, but He will see to it that His truth is perpetuated. Now look back at Romans chapter 11, verse 31. Speaking of the Jews, he said, Even so have these also now not believed, that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief, that he might have mercy upon all. Now look at this. In the Old Testament, the Jewish people were given the true worship of God. The Gentiles were foreigners to those covenants of promise. In the Gospel age, the Jews for the most part rejected the Gospel and Jesus said, Your house is left unto you desolate, until ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And therefore the Gentiles were converted to the gospel. But I like this. It says, God hath concluded them all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all. Did you notice that saying, you have mercy... Because God concluded that you're an unbeliever. That would blow the mind of the religious world, wouldn't it? God has mercy on you because He concluded that you're an unbeliever. And it's with that in mind that I want you to look at chapter 12. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Everything I've set before you to this point is for the purpose of showing you that all of God's people have been unbelievers at one time. Not all of them all the time, but some of them all the time. And we see that when we look at history in general, that there were people that had it in the Old Testament that don't have it now, and people that didn't have it in the Old Testament that do have it now. And you could even apply that to to even our own lifetime. And you'll still see that principle. God hath concluded them all in unbelief that He might have mercy upon all. 
So he says, I'm beseeching you based on the mercies of God. Here's the first point I want you to see. Paul says, I want you to be motivated based on the fact that God had mercy on you even in unbelief. In other words, you don't deserve what God's given you. And he says, in spite of the fact that your blessings are based on the mercies of God, he says, I'm, I'm beseeching, I'm pleading, I'm calling upon you that because of those mercies, you ought to present your bodies a living sacrifice. In other words, there's no greater incentive for service to God than understanding that you're the object of mercies. See, it's a false notion, and it does not fit the condition of a born-again child of God. It doesn't fit his mindset for someone to say, well, if I believed it was all by mercies, I wouldn't care how I lived. That, that, that scenario doesn't fit. As a matter of fact, notice Paul actually admonished uh, the churches of Galatia being more than one church in Galatians chapter 5 verse 13, having said in verse 1 that we're to stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. He now says in verse 13, Brethren, you've been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh. That means for an opportunity to sin but by love serve one another don't use liberty as some of the old preachers used to say as a license to sin but to the contrary Paul says I'm using the mercies of God as my tool to motivate you now if you truly understand that you are undeserving and that you have been in a state of unbelief at one time or another and God had mercy on you anyway, that should be a springboard for your motivation to serve God. Now, you know, we can have the proper motivation but not know what to do. You know, I think we overuse Brother Mason as an example, you know, down at the box. I have the motivation to get in better shape, but a lot of times I don't know what to do. That's why I pay Brother Mason a monthly fee, because I don't know what to do, you know. I have the motivation. But notice here, he says uh, in Romans chapter 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies, what? A living sacrifice. So let's find out what to do. I think you all already have the motivation. Once you see grace, that motivates. He says, present your bodies a living sacrifice. That just means that the way you live your life in this mortal body should be that which is sacrificial service to the Lord. 
Notice what he says. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. See, an Old Testament sacrifice involved the death of that which was sacrificed. He says, I don't want you to do that. I want you to be a living sacrifice. In other words, your whole life in this mortal body is one of sacrificing the selfish desires of the flesh. He says, present your body a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Now, notice this. To sacrifice your life, that's a pretty big deal, isn't it? Regardless of how you're looking at it. If you're to give your life for someone else's, that's a big deal. Likewise, spiritually, Jesus said you can't, love, you can't serve mammon and God. You know, uh, you can't love the world and love God at the same time. There's a sacrifice to be made. But notice what he says here. He says you're, you're to live, present your bodies a living sacrifice. And he says that's your reasonable service. That just means if you reason this out, you know, the truth is not illogical. An evidence of the Holy Spirit is not that there's disorder in the house. Matter of fact, that's the evidence that there's another spirit in the house. And likewise, the Word of God is reasonable. He says this is reasonable service when you consider the mercies of God He has toward us, especially when you consider those mercies are based on what Jesus did for you. This is reasonable service. Okay, how do you do this reasonable service? He says you're living a sacrificial life in this mortal body. You present your body as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. Now, there's one sense that you're already holy. But there's another sense in which you're to strive to be holy. Notice in um, Ephesians chapter 1, notice how you're described here. He says, uh, verse uh, 4, you're familiar with the, this portion of Scripture. In Ephesians 1, 4, he says, According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And then he goes on and says, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children. It was God's purpose that we would ultimately be holy and without blame before him in love. And we will in heaven be holy and without blame before him in love. But also, if you turn over to the epistle of Peter, in 1 Peter, and chapter 1, verse 15, he says, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. That means in all areas of life. Because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. And there's many times in the Bible that there, 
As one preacher said, almost any major subject has more than one application. You are, God predetermined you're going to be holy and without blame before Him in love, and you will be. But while you journey here, He says, be holy. He says, in, in all manner of conversation, in, in every area of life, and that's what Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 12, when he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Okay, that's what you're to do. Now, how do you do it? It's easy to understand, but not easy to do. You know, it's easy to understand how a husband and wife should be toward each other. You know, you can just study the Bible a little while and understand that. Now, it may not be easy to do. It's easy to study the book of Proverbs and learn and understand the principles of training children. But it's not easy to do. Well, if you see that it's only reasonable based on what God's done for me, that I live my life as a sacrifice. Now, what does that mean exactly? That means that whatever you do, you do in a way that honors God whether you're a surgeon or a janitor. You honor God in what you do and in how you do it and in how you prefer other people and treat them right. Here's how you do it. Be not conformed to this world. Now, to be conformed means to take on the image of it or take on the characteristics of it. That requires no effort. You know, just think of examples like this. If you take a brand new automobile, one time I saw a story where someone took a brand new automobile and they said, I'm going to make a special concrete or metal box and I'm going to bury it deep in the ground and preserve it and I'm going to bring it out you know 50 years later and it's going to be just like a brand new car the problem is water got in it and it was almost completely destroyed you know what that car uh, conformed to its environment we tend to conform you build a house, build a wood house, and do nothing for a uh, hundred years or two hundred years. It'll the, the wood will be all, almost back into dirt by then. We conform to the environment, and the same is true in your life. You are prone to conform to the environment. That's why we need to make sure that the environment in the church is not a worldly environment. Because we're prone to conform to the environment. He says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. To transform means to change. 
when you study electricity, you know, the transformers, there's step-up transformers and there's step-down transformers. If you didn't have the right kind of power supply for your smartphone and you just plugged it into the wall and let that full voltage go to your phone, it would fry it completely. That power has to be transformed. You know, that big square thing you plug in, that's, that's making a transformation into a, a, a voltage, a power that's suitable. The point is it changes it. And that's what he says. He says we're to be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. That word renew means to renovate. Someone renovates a house, they're making major changes, aren't they? Renovate your thinking. Now let me just give you a couple of examples where if we're not careful, we can even in the church be conforming to this world. Think of this. In Titus chapter 2, it talks about how the older women are to teach the younger women. It tells them what to teach them. I've heard, not here, I've heard during my time as a minister them teaching the young women some things that aren't listed here. And here's the main one. What's going to be your career? Let's see, let's see if the older women are to teach the younger women. Now you need to, you know, you need to focus on your career. Uh, you, you've got to have two incomes today. You know, you just can't make it on one income. Let's see what they taught the younger women about that. Let's see if we're conforming to, that's what the world teaches. Let's see if we're conforming, uh, or see if we're conforming to the world or being transformed. In Titus chapter 2, it says in verse 3, the aged women likewise, that doesn't mean the old women, that means the older women, the aged women likewise, that they be in behaviors becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Wow, there's no focus on career. Not listed. You know why? Because the same man that was inspired of God to write this wrote to Timothy and said, I will therefore that the young women marry, bear children, guide the house, give none occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. It's a big deal if you, if you don't do things God's way in any area of life because you give open door for the adversary to bring reproach. And he will. You give him an opportunity, and he will. Here's another example. Somebody says, well, I would visit y'all's church, but... You don't have a nursery for the children. Well, we have a room out there, but the purpose of that room is this. That if your child is restless, if your child is not behaving, 
You take the child there as the parent, and that doesn't just mean mama, that could be father or mother. If the father does it, there'll be, that's a different subject. If the father does it, there'll be less trips made out there. But the purpose is not to turn the children over to other people to take care of them while letting them know if you misbehave, you can step out of the sanctuary. That's what you're teaching. But see, that takes away from the Bible teaching that the mother and father are responsible for their children. I've talked to people that talk about how the nursery at their church is just out of control. You know why? Because mom and dad are not involved. You know, your job when your children are little is to teach them to be still and be quiet. You know, sometimes we say that old saying, children are to be seen and not heard. That applies to the church meeting. When they're little and preaching's going on, they're to be seen and not heard. But see, God gave parents that responsibility. So that's what, I'm not, what I mean when we read where Paul says, don't be conformed to the world. Don't do things the world's way. And especially don't let that in, influence your thinking in the church because this of all places ought to be, be where we can come and, not, and, and, and be transformed and there not be a threat of being conformed to the world. We deal with that all week. In what the world says about how you ought to live life. So he says, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do you renew your mind? You renew it with the word of God. Because that you're to think the way God thinks and do the way God does. So let's consider something about that. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Listen to this. That you may prove. That word prove there means to bring something under scrutiny. Do you scrutinize the things the world tells you? You know, and this used to be a subject I preached on a lot, and when some of you young parents start having babies, I'll preach on it some more. And that is the, one of the things the world misrepresents more than anything else is how to bring up your children. I mean, they never get it right. So he says, we got to scrutinize what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now let's look at a couple of examples of that. Okay, here's what the world says that they want you to conform to. And I've seen church members conform to it. That is this. You should never Spank your child. That's what the world says. That will, that'll mess them up. They, uh, you know, they just won't develop right. And what I've always said is this. Look at young people today. Have they developed right? Have the products of that philosophy turned out good? Compare that to the products of what I'm about to show you from the Word of God. And you tell me who turned out the best. 
people says, you don't want to spank your child. It's almost that, that you lay that groundwork before you even start talking about it. Have you noticed that? Well, I, I want us to talk about it, uh, but the counselor says, first I want you to know you should never spank your child. And we'll go from there. They've started off in conforming to the world. Notice Proverbs chapter 22, verse 15. Let's, let's scrutinize that. Let's prove that. Let's see if that will stand up to Scripture. I believe it's Proverbs chapter 22 and uh, verse 15. Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction shall drive it far from him. Let's see, does that agree with what the world says? I don't think it does. Let's scrutinize what the world says with the Word of God. First of all, the Word of God tells you something about children that the world doesn't understand. Foolishness, that means rebellion, is bound, it's tied up. It's bound in the heart of a child. I saw a child just the other day that forgot where I was that he kept hitting his mother. It was at the airport, that's where it was. Kept hitting his mother. Grandfather was there, he didn't do anything about it. But then about 15 years from now, they're going to wonder, why is he so rebellious? Just a mystery. Why, why did he turn out like he did? Well, he started manifesting the problem a long time ago. You know, as a pastor, I've had a few times where people wanted me to fix in two or three hours what had been going on for 15 years. We can't do that. He says the rod of correction will drive it far from them. Drive it away. And then what about this one? We well, you know marriage is a good thing, but I just think it'd be a lot better if we just lived together first. You know, to see if it'll work. That, that sounds right, doesn't it? And the world advises that you, you're not obligated. You know, if, if you realize you're not compatible, you can, you know, just part ways and there's no, no money to divide or anything. You know, it just makes it a lot easier to, to try it out. And then the world's got all kind of proverbs. Oh, I like to test drive a car before I buy. Oh, that, you know, the world can make everything sound good. Well, let's see if the Bible tells us the will of God on that. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification. Not only is this God's will, this is what sets you apart from the world. This is how you avoid conforming to the world. He says that ye should abstain from fornication. You know, the world doesn't like to call things what they are. Uh, you know, we're living together. No, you're fornicating. Uh, we're having an extramarital affair. No, you're committing adultery. It still offends the world uh, if, you, if you call it what it is. 
had someone tell me one time, well, I'm in a non-traditional relationship. I'm sure you can figure that one out. But it tells us what God's will is. Oh, I feel like the Lord's just leading us. No, well, you may feel that all you want, but if he explicitly says this is not God's will, then that ain't the Lord leading you and making you feel that way. So he says, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove, that you may put to the test what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say, through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, and that's referring to every man, woman, boy, and girl, to every man that is among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. If you dismiss the word of God, you're thinking a lot more highly of yourself than you ought to think. But to think soberly, that means put a moderate estimate on yourself. In other words, yes, you're a child of God, and God has put his spirit in you, and he's given you the ability to discern right and wrong. You, you do have that ability. You're not totally incapable of doing anything that would please God. But don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but to think soberly according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. So, we have the right foundation to motivate us to present our bodies a living sacrifice. Before you give anybody else in the church counsel, see if your counsel stands up to the Word of God. Because we don't want the church to be a place where we're giving worldly counsel and because it's coming from us as older members in the church, those young people are going to think, well, that's what the Lord said. we got a big responsibility, don't we? And it applies to older men and older women, but you know a lot of what the older women are to do, and again, that's not the old women. A woman that has teenagers is an older woman to a young single woman who has not been married. She's an older woman to her. And a lot of what they do, as you can tell in reading that passage in Titus 2, is based on life experience. And then looking at that life experience in light of the Scripture. I like what I heard a preacher say one time, and this shows the attitudes we're prone to have. He said, when I was little, I thought my daddy knew everything. When I was a teenager, I didn't think he knew anything. And he said, now that I'm grown, I know he's not perfect, but he knows more than I do. And you can glean so much from older people in the church when you listen to their life experiences 
You know, I had, I had access to people who lived through the Depression. If you come to me as an older person, I don't have that experience. I had it easy. But let's cherish those that are, we have in the church that can help us be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.